Hi, welcome to the podcast. Today we're reading from Nehemiah 2, 1 to 10, and this is the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, For how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? Please the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence that I will occupy." Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent me an army of officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And we thank God for his word, for how it still speaks to us today. I had a little free evening uh, one night last week. And so I decided that in the midst of a fairly hectic, stressful couple of weeks getting ready for a fabric conference, that of course the best thing I could do to relax and unwind was to watch a film. So I absolutely, uh, very clearly chose The Revenant. What was I thinking? I think I totally forgot when I saw it in the cinema that I had left with two things. One, a jaw so sore for about two days because I'd been sat clenching my teeth that hard for the two or three hours that the movie actually took. And two, just feeling cold, like cold in my bones, cold from all the running around and the ice and falling in the rivers and all that that goes on. But anyway, I watched The Revenant. And if you don't know anything about the movie, I'm sorry, I'm about to spoil it for you. But trust me, though, it won't detract from the watch. I mean, if you're just desperate for a sore jaw and flu-like symptoms, that's cool. You go right ahead. Anyway, the story is incredible. And actually, it's a true one, except some of the details are a little different to the movie. It's all about this frontiersman called Hugh Glass, who was based in the Midwest of the United States in the 1800s. And these were properly hard men, like properly hard. I mean, something like 25 crew members got hypothermia just shooting the film, and hundreds quit. So the story goes that that he worked for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and was enlisted both to trap beaver and to help guide as he supposedly knew the land better than the rest. Basically, one day he was attacked by a grizzly bear while searching for food. The film was pretty spot on in its depiction of the attack, right? He shot the bear, but the bear just keeps coming. First of all, the bear tears a big chunk out of his backside and throws it to his cubs to feed to its cubs. It then proceeds to rake him down his back, bite him about the head, shook him around like a rag doll. The bear broke his leg, tore his whole throat open, so much so that he never speaks the same way again, and it tore his back to shreds. That's aside from the biting to the head. So he's dead, right? I mean, nobody survives an attack like that. There's no possible way that anyone is able to live through such a savage attack from a grizzly bear. Like, surely not. 
He's dead, right? Wrong. Two men were paid extra, essentially to stay with him until he died, right? Because carrying him through the wilderness that they were in was just too difficult in the circumstances. Except when they had waited for a full five days, he still wasn't dead. And they were pretty far away from their other team by now. So they decided that they were just going to put him in a shallow grave and they left. They took his rifle, his axe, his tools, his flint. They took everything and they left. Then he's dead, right? wrong he lives okay he doesn't die he lives and he was hungry and he wanted revenge so badly that he just started to crawl he crawled out of the shallow grave he crawled to a river the first thing he did according to his own testimony was that he killed a rattlesnake with a sharp stone and he ate it there like just raw he then crawled some more and some more and some more before he started to limp when he felt a little bit better Uh, Some of the things were different from the film. So, for example, he didn't fall off a cliff or sleep inside a dismembered horse. He did, however, chase wolves, that's right, massive great wolves, off a calf carcass and eat whatever he could raw. He did walk into a full herd of bison, run down a calf and kill it and then eat it. He did walk nearly 400 miles in ice and snow, all for revenge for the men who left him dead and killed his son. And that's incredible, right? I mean, how does anybody do that? I mean, most of us can't even drive in the snow, let alone walk 400 miles in the snow. Surely only seething, raging revenge could do that to someone. Well, not exactly. Actually, in reality, he walked all that way for his rifle. He loved his rifle. It was a gift from some of the native Indians. And he walked all that way, half dead, for a rifle. His son, they don't actually know if he ever had a son, and certainly he wasn't killed in the interaction. It was his rifle that he wanted, and he wanted revenge for the people that took it. So imagine when eventually he got to the man who had left him there to die in a shallow grave in the middle of nowhere, right? There's going to be fireworks, right? Well, no, actually. When he eventually got to Fort Atkinson and came face to face with the man who had left him, the anger just simply disappeared. He asked for his rifle back, and he got it back, and... That was it. Except that doesn't make for such a great movie, does it? This huge build-up, this impossible journey. And then when the moment comes, he just couldn't, he wouldn't go through with the vengeance that he had so sought. And I wonder how often that sort of thing happens to us. We long for something so much with all that we have. We're on our knees praying for an opportunity. And then the moment comes and we fluff it. Like praying for an opportunity to share your faith with your best mate or your workmate or your brother and sister or your husband, your wife, whatever. And then the moment comes and you deflect or you undersell it. Or for example, how often do you hear top level coaches talk about after all the preparation and millions of pounds spent in the moment, on the day, they just failed to execute. You hear it all the time, waiting for your moment and then there was a failure to execute. Then it comes. You can't quite do quite what you've trained, prepared and dream for but not Nehemiah in fact when his moment came his was a moment of boldness and tonight I want to talk about boldness quick recap on the story so far Nehemiah 1 we watched Nehemiah having this inciting incident this game changer moment after which everything has changed. He meets some people from Jerusalem. He asks them some questions. When they give him the details, he weeps over the plight of his people in the city of God. So he prays to God and pledges himself to action. And the bulk of what we spoke about last week was actually about what he said to God. But as we come to Nehemiah 2, then this is about what he says to the king. This is his moment. This is what he asked for. This is what he's been waiting for. Finally, it's here. And he takes it with boldness. 
You know, I think deep down we all want more boldness in our life, in our faith, and in whatever we're putting our heart and our hands to. Billy Graham, now deceased, but a man who preached to millions once said this, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. That's the sort of courage and boldness we long for, isn't it? The type of boldness that causes others to walk a little taller. So how did boldness look for Nehemiah? For Nehemiah, boldness looked like two things. It looked like a bold pause and it looked like a bold play. First thing was a bold pause. This is what it says in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. You know, I don't know if you've ever spent any time looking at personality types or done your own self-reflection or read a book or whatever, but I'm wondering tonight if you know if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You know, I always thought I was a really clear extrovert, but the older I get and the more opportunities I have for people to tell me about myself, the more I realize that I actually have some pretty introverted tendencies. Like, it's not a straightforward thing. Like, I realize that I'm outspoken, I accept change easily, I'm open, I can enjoy my fair share of attention, maybe like a little bit too much attention, all of which are extrovert tendencies. But I'm also recharged by time alone. I think and reflect before I make decisions. I'm not easily distracted and I only ever open up to a few. But Nehemiah is easy. He's a raging extrovert. And we'll see that played out in the weeks ahead. He's outspoken, open, makes decisions quickly, works in wide open buzzing spaces. He accepts change. He has group conversations. And yeah, he also enjoys attention. He's a raging extrovert. If you want the walking, talking example, you should go talk to Raquel, right? He's a raging extrovert. And that's what makes a bold pause extraordinary this passage starts by telling you that we're now in the month of nisan and you might recall that nehemiah 1 started in the month of kislev and in the jewish calendar that means that over a hundred days have passed since the prayers we read in nehemiah 1 100 days and willing wouldn't have been easy for nehemiah it was probably something he likely wasn't very good at i mean his prayer in nehemiah 111 says it all give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man today 100 days. God, come on here. One day and 100 days are not the same thing. What are you doing? And I can relate, right? If you've ever asked God to move in your life and you find yourself waiting for 100 days or whatever, a long period of time, not sure if the day will ever come, it's hugely frustrating. You start to question everything. I mean, there were days along the way after I knew deep down that God had captured my heart to plant a church in the city. There were days when I thought that this day would never come. Days when the waiting felt pointless. Days when it felt like God was speaking to everyone else but silent with me. When it felt like he kept showing up in everyone else's life but mine where you find yourself saying, but God, you've called me. Where are you? Have you ever felt this way? The the reality was that Nehemiah's boldness started in the pause. Because in the pause, he was getting on board with God's timing. And how badly do we need to know that in a world of the instantaneous? Because so often in the Bible, with bold purpose, there's a bold pause. Like in the book of the Acts, we watch the story of the birth and the explosion of the church unfold right before our eyes. It follows the Gospels. We've read these four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Then we eventually get to Acts. And after All of that will come in this book and what will unfold from then until now is the most incredible story of hope and truth and life and transformation and it shapes the whole world. And you might think right then that if you're one of the disciples, you are desperate to get the mission out. 
You're desperate to get the message out. You're desperate to see lives changed with the message of Jesus. But this is what it says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. You see, the message of Jesus spread to the ends of the earth, was sent on its way, not in working, but in waiting. For six weeks they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And then the Holy Spirit came, and it was worth it all. You know, sure, you could look at the events in Nehemiah 2 and say that he waited until the month of Nisan because it was strategic. The month of Nisan was actually the Persian king's birthday and he granted favours or graces, for example, to people in his birthday month. He was going to be more lenient. He was more charitable. Remember, he, he waited until he knew the king was going to have a woman by his side and he was in a better mood, right? Seems like a better opportunity to ask if he's in a good mood. There are perhaps logical, reasonable reasons for the waiting. But I think the waiting was about far more than just common sense. Because even in the waiting, God was working in him. He's changing in the pause. Just four verses later, right at the heart of the moment, the moment he's longed for and waited a hundred days for, just sitting in the great purpose of his life. This is what it says. The king said to me, what is it you want? This is his moment. And what does he do? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king. He's got his moment. What does he do? He prays. Even though he's just spent over three months of prayer and waiting, what's his first reaction? It's to pray and to seek God. He makes use of the moment when it comes and he takes his chance to lift his heart to God before he lifts his voice to the king. It was a bold pause. It was a bold pause. But Nehemiah wasn't just uttering dependent prayers. He also had deliberate plans. There was a bold play. And the thing is, in the history books, there are many bold plays, right? Whether it's sporting or uh, military or whatever, the history books are full of bold plays. And I love to read about some of the incredible feats in something like World War II. Like, for example, in 1943, the Allies undertook Operation Gunnerside. And what happened at Gunnerside was that the Germans eventually invaded Norway in the early 40s. And they took over a factory up in Telemark that produced heavy water, a.k.a. exactly the thing they needed to make plutonium. The Allies, realizing that Nazis with ingredients for an atom bomb was a somewhat undesirable situation, sent 30 British Army officers to sabotage the plant. But a combination of really bad weather conditions and the Gestapo killed the entire group. So the Allies sent something even more deadly than 30 Brits, 11 Norwegians. But as if the mission wasn't insane enough, the Germans decided to make it even more difficult when they, did, when they started to beef up the plant's defences, sprinkling mines and floodlights and guards all over the place. The result was that the only way to get into Hitler's Arctic nuke factory was a Nazi-held bridge over a 660-foot-high gorge. This sounds made up, but actually it's true. Or at least the Germans thought that that was the only way in. They thought that the only way in was straight through the front door. I mean, no one's going to come down the 660-foot ice gorge, right? 
except the Norwegians simply climbed right down the supposedly unscalable gorge and snuck into the factory. They laid the explosives and they were about to light the fuse and escape, but, and none of this is a joke, the base's Norwegian caretaker, whom they were holding at gunpoint, announced that he'd lost his glasses and he refused to leave until they were found. This is a true story. Naturally, the commandos put to stop Hitler from getting the bomb plan on hold until they located the man's glasses. Not only did the commandos complete their mission without casualties, they in fact released the caretaker and other civilians as soon as the fuses were lit. They got medals, right? But later, one of them and three other Norwegians actually came back to sink the ferry the Germans were trying to use to evacuate the heavy water that they already had. What an amazing story, right? Insane mission. Massive stakes. Bull play. This is what we read in verses 1 to 4. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? And the reality in these moments was that Nehemiah was afraid. He was just afraid. And for good reason, because the equation was pretty simple in those days. I mean, if you were someone serving the king, downcast essentially equal dead. I mean, no self-respecting king wanted a depressed-looking person around him. If you were a slave or a servant, you at least had better look happy about it. So if you showed up to serve the king with a sad face, you're dead. Persian kings weren't exactly renowned for their mercy. And on top of that, he would have been afraid for what he was about to ask. Persian kings weren't exactly renowned for their generosity either. And this is it. This is the moment. His heart would have been racing, his mind racing, wondering if this was the reason that he's in this position as cupbearer. Is it for this purpose? Is it for this very moment? And the thing is, as we find out, fear isn't something that Nehemiah is known for. In the chapters ahead, he'll face all kinds of issues, individuals and challenges, and fear is not something that follows him. Boldness is. And that's because he knew that in the place of fear, trust was vital. Even in the place of fear, there was grace enough. Even if he was struggling, he was choosing to trust the purpose on his life. I was very much afraid. Pause. But I said to the king, no hesitation, no mincing his words, no failure to execute. Nehemiah got the grace, the courage, and the resources in the moment that he needed them because he chose to trust God and stick to the play. Raymond Brown, Bible commentator, said this, We are rarely given the precise resources in advance so that they are stored away like some immense untouched reserves of courage, fortitude, strength and peace. And grace comes in the moment of need. The simple truth is this. We don't get tomorrow's grace, tomorrow's courage, tomorrow's boldness today. We don't get dying grace to live by. We get to trust And trust that sufficient grace will always match your present need, whatever your need. But Nehemiah's trust is not the only way that he had a bold play. It was a bold play because it was a bold plan. I mean, just look at the exchange, right? Here we go, verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. 
and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. This whole exchange with the king was no fluke, and it was very clearly not left to chance. Clearly in the hundred days of waiting, Nehemiah hadn't just given God his prayers and his trust. He'd also given him his thinking. How do I know? Well, these three things. I mean, first, just look at how he talks about the city's need. This is what it says. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. This is genius, okay? Like proper genius. Because he appealed to the Persian respect for the dead rather than the Israelite concern for the living. It was countercultural for him. But he was talking to a Persian king, so he spoke to his culture. So what does he do? He talks about his dead ancestors because they revered the dead. He spoke first about graves before he spoke about gates. And this is genius. Because if he talked about the broken walls and the gates, all the king would have heard was military defences. And there's no way that he ever would have agreed to that. I mean, what intelligent leader agrees to the rebuilding of fortifications for a conquered people in a city with a history of troublemaking? And in fact, in the book of Ezra, the same king, just 13 years earlier, wrote this. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Essentially, Nehemiah was asking the king to grant him something he'd already banned 13 years before. But because he spoke to the king's cultural sensitivities, he makes progress. Secondly, look at how he answers the king's questions. This is what it says in verse 6. Then the king and the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So he set a time. Reasonable question. You're my cupbearer. You're important. How long will it take? So he just gives a reasonable quick answer. This is how long. And thirdly, look at how he planned a hazardous journey. I said to him, If it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. You know something, when I read this part of the passage, I can't help but run for cover a little bit. I mean, it feels like he's already asked for so much. It feels a bit like, please, sir, can I have some more? I mean, I almost wince at the expectation that the king is going to explode on him just going to send him to the gallows but yet it never comes he needed protection and provision and he wasn't afraid to ask for it and on the face of it it probably doesn't sound significant but yet what he asked for was not just because it would secure his safety to get to jerusalem to start the project but also because it spoke of the boldness that was within him because 13 years earlier ezra the man who had went before him someone who he would have heard about and deeply respected chose exactly the opposite in Ezra 8, 22, it describes how Ezra turns down the offer of a military escort because it showed to him a lack of confidence in God. Yet Nehemiah asked for it in these moments because to him it displayed God's goodness. 
Boldness that believed in the purpose that was being called out of him and only him. He took a different path. And it was his own path. It was a bold pause. And it was a bold play. 